your opportunity to listen and learn from the most successful people driving growth and success in Palm Beach County and beyond. Welcome to the Business in Paradise Palm Beach podcast with Carrie Stamp, founder of Carrie Stamp and Company, Principled Wealth Advisors. Carrie and his guests share stories and insights from Palm Beach County's most successful executives, entrepreneurs, and community leaders. Learn how they made it to where they are today, what principles guide them, how they mentor others to achieve success, and more. This is Carrie Stamp. I'm your host for the Business in Paradise podcast. And my guest today is somebody that I've known for quite a bit of time. It's Corey Sabin, who is the president of CS Media Works. Corey specializes in media coaching, crisis management, and presentation training. And he likes to summarize it. Corey, welcome to the podcast and tell us exactly what it is. Carrie, thank you so much for having me. Uh, basically, what I do is I help people craft their story and protect their brand. That's fantastic. And you've been doing that for how long, Corey? You, I know you have a background in media. How long have you had your own business? Uh, 2008. And prior to 2008, which was, I remember it quite clearly because it was right after I moved to South Florida. And I played a lot of golf that year because the financial advisors weren't working very much in 2007, 2008. Uh, We were probably drinking more than we should have, but we certainly weren't working particularly hard because there wasn't a lot of fun stuff happening in the investment markets. Prior to that time, what were you doing in Palm Beach County? So I moved to Palm Beach County in 2004. I was working in news. And at the time, I was working for a station in Jacksonville. And we just got hit with Hurricane Francis. And I was starting at this news station, WPBF. And I moved here. And then my first three days on the job, I got to deal with Hurricane Jean. And not sure if my new condo was going to withstand it or not, because as a reporter, you're out in the elements. So that's what brought me to Palm Beach County. In fact, I bought my place sight unseen, uh, just in pictures. Um, I remember the realtor saying, you need to go to Abacoa. And I said, I don't know what an Abacoa is, but she said it was near the baseball stadium and there was a movie theater nearby. I liked the pictures and that sold me. So where did you move from? Jacksonville, Florida. I was working at a CBS affiliate up there. So how long had you been in the media business? 15 years. Um, So I started my career in sports radio in Miami and did that for five years and then accidentally fell into TV news. Are you from Miami? From Queens, New York originally. And we moved to Florida, migratory like most New Yorkers do. But we started early when I was 15. Okay. So 15 years old. You're going to high school in Miami, right? Coral Springs. Coral Coral Springs. Springs. Okay. You're thinking about the future and what life's going to look like for you. And was the idea of being on television or being on the radio, was that paramount in your mind as a a teenager? 100%. Totally. Really? Okay. But you're also an athlete. Not a good one. No? Not a good one. A struggling athlete. All right. So you wanted to be uh, be in the media. Uh, and how, how did that transgress? You go to college for being on TV? So you asked me at the earliest age, I grew up in Queens, New York in the 70s. In the 70s in New York, Reggie Jackson and the Yankees were all the rage. But we lived in Queens and dad did not want to drive to the Bronx. So we went to Shea Stadium where the woeful Mets had Ed Cranepole and John Stearns. Names you probably don't know unless you're an avid baseball fan. 
So we would go to those games and still sit in the 400 level. And my whole goal at those games was to get as close to the dugout as possible. And I said, boy, one day I want to go to these games and I want to, I just love this feeling. I want to talk during the game. I want to get to know these athletes and cover these athletes. And I want the best seats possible. And that was my goal to be a sportscaster. And then when we moved to Florida, um, I went to Florida State University and I got heavily involved in the college radio station and they didn't have a sports department. And they said, well, if you can do news and sports, great. I said, great. And they said, well, we have eight shifts. I said, all right, I got six buddies and we each uh, covered a shift. I picked up two and we started covering it and then started covering Bobby Bowden's news conferences. And um, he was very welcoming. You know, he said, where are you from, boy? I said, uh, South Florida. He goes, Miami. And he welcomed me as the youngest reporter in the room at these news conferences where it was only 10 reporters back in the uh, late 80s. And that was it. Created a little on-campus TV show and did everything we possibly could do and then sent out tapes upon graduation. So in the media business, I think that usually or often the goal is to start in a smaller market and move up to bigger and bigger markets as uh, uh, you have the opportunity. Is that kind of what your plan was when you started up there? I graduated college, and I sent out, Carrie, about 100 demo tapes to every station in America, and I was rejected. I then sent out letters to every sports franchise you can think of, and I was rejected. And I would approach the mailbox with great trepidation and see something, the logo, the storied logos of the Celtics, the Lakers, rejection, rejection, rejection. I then sent out a tape to Juneau, Alaska, and to Guam, of which about three months later, I got love from Guam offering me an opportunity. And it was the most amazing feeling ever, feeling wanted after all the rejection. Then Juneau, Alaska, which gave me the confidence to feel I could make it in the lower United States. And out of all this rejection, my father said to me, I listened to the sports radio station in Miami. You should go down there. They have a guy named Hank Goldberg. They've got Jim Bandich. Uh, it's a great station. I said, okay. I went down and I sat and talked to the news director. He said, I can't pay you. I can't give you a job. I can't give you an internship. I'm sorry. I went home the next day dejected. And I went home, excuse me, dejected. And the next day I showed up again. And I don't know, I just showed up again. My dad said, nothing happens without a dream. Go. I put on the same suit, changed the shirt. All I owned was one suit. And I sat there literally for four or five hours in the bullpen area. And they asked me to get an athlete on the phone. And at some point, the gentleman who asked me that was Hank Goldberg, who was the on-air host. He thought I worked there. And I got the athlete on the phone with a great deal of nerves in my voice. I mustered up the courage to call him. And he went down to the news director's office and said, hey, the new guy just got us so-and-so. And he said, what new guy? And Hank said, um, you know, I thought you worked here. I said, uh, no, I was sitting here waiting for a meeting with uh, Joe Z. And Joe Z said, I, I can't pay you and we can't give you an internship. But if you showed up every day, uh, we wouldn't tell you to leave. So I did that for about three months. And then I'd work about eight hours and then wait tables at night. And then the executive producer at the station told me that WINZ got the rights to the Miami Heat and they needed a producer and I should apply. And I did. And I got that job. And that's how I started in Miami. Corey, I'm getting goosebumps just listening to really? uh, the story. So, and the reason why it's probably the case is because it's so similar 
to uh, what I did, but I was probably a little bit more brash in uh, how I approached my first job in that the guy rejected me three times. I told him, I need to work here, I need to work here. And the third time I, I told him what a big mistake he was making and that uh, he totally needed to reconsider. And I just wore him down. But they actually did pay me. It was big money. Back then in uh, 1990, it was uh, $1,500 a month. <laughs> and uh, I think about that first job and how hard it was to get. And the gratification, because at 22 years old, which I was at the time, they weren't hiring 22-year-old stockbrokers to work with people that had real money. It just, it's not something that somebody that has a substantial amount of money or even an, even an insubstantial amount of money wants some 22-year-old kid fresh out of college telling him what to do with it. So uh, that's fantastic. Your uh, uh, story of going in every single day suiting up and showing up, as I like to tell the guys here, uh, so that you could eventually accomplish what you wanted. So did you get the producer job? Got the job producing the Miami Heat, $16,000 a year, and you would go to every home game, 4 o'clock. I put in place the pregame show, and I really got to know the uh, gentleman who hosted the show, and he felt very comfortable with me after about four months. Let me do the locker room show and all those things. And then uh, they were like, okay, well, we're getting the right to the Miami Hurricanes. Would you like to go to cover those news conferences? And I did. And I got to, I worked with a gentleman named Sonny Hirsch and Dave Lamont. And I became the uh, first Hurricane sideline reporter that they had for the football team in a, quite some time in 1995. And um, worked with a guy named Don Bailey Jr., who eventually became the color commentary and started doing then dolphins news conferences and everything in Miami. And I did that for a couple of years at WINZ and a friend of mine, um, who's still on the air, John Shambi, uh, Boog had said, Hey, WQAM is looking for people. You should uh, apply. And I did. And he put a word in for me and I became the update guy for Hank Goldberg in the afternoon in the nineties while also covering the Hurricanes and doing some Dolphin pregame stuff and covering everything that was sports in the Miami uh, area in, you know, the 90s, which was fantastic. We had a World Series team in the Marlins. We had uh, the Panthers in the Stanley Cup. Dolphins with the transition from Shula to Johnson and Dan Marino still. Uh, it was a wonderful time. At some point, you make a transition from radio to television. How did that come about? That is a fun story. Um, I used to carry around tapes everywhere. And every time I'd be covering something with the radio station, I'd see the TV guys. And I'd say, hey, can you pop my tape in and just shoot me doing a stand-up so I can put together a demo tape? So it looks like, you know, hey, this guy knows what he's doing. Or if I'm interviewing this one, can you do it? They were gracious. And I would do it and I would do it. And I'd send out these tapes everywhere and I'd get rejected. Again, same thing. Well, he has no TV experience. And same thing with the perseverance. Uh, a friend of mine said, you know, show up. So I said, okay, well, I know I need to go somewhere to make mistakes. And I had learned that. I was at a uh, Marlins game, and I was doing an interview with Tim McCarver. And just talking with Tim afterwards, and he was like, All right, what are your plans? And I said, well, I want to get a TV. And he goes, you know, it's just like anything. Go to the minor leagues. And that struck a chord with me. Here I was living in Miami. I was fortunate to be in a top 20 market doing sports radio and covering some amazing events. I targeted the TV stations in Fort Myers. 
two hours away, Market 79, further away. And I said I was going to be in town and I would love to do some informational interviews with the news directors so I can learn more about them and what it would take to get into TV. Thankfully, they could hear some of the stuff I was doing in Miami. Three stations said yes. I went over there. One of the guys saved my tape. And a year later, he called me, asked me to come over to audition for a job. I was absolutely terrible. Uh, I had not been on TV before for a morning show, but I also let the Fox News gentlemen know that I was going to be there. And I fibbed a little bit and said that the CBS station liked me. So he made me an offer and I accepted it. So this is in Fort Myers. Correct. So you move or did you stay in Miami and drive to Fort Myers? I moved over there and they hired me under the pretense that I would be the sports guy, but he wasn't fired yet. So if I could do news for a month. I had never done news before, Carrie. And in sports, you would say, hey, Michael Jordan went out and he did X, Y, Z. And in news, I would get on the air and be like, Bill shot Tom. And they'd be like, whoa, where's allegedly or police say? And I'm like, but the police report says it. No, I was terrible. I was ostracized by my colleagues. Uh, as I later learned, I was hyped as this guy that was going to save the station. Uh, but I was terrible in the beginning for about the first month. And what really motivated me was I knew I was an amazing sportscaster. I could do play by play like that off the top of my head and tell a story. But I was horrible at news. So when they said, hey, we're getting rid of the sports guy. Do you want the job? I said, no. And I just studied the news. I Back in the day, I'd send away for VHS tapes of the best reporters, and I would watch those. I went to storytelling school. I learned different techniques and how to use natural sound, how to let a story breathe, to really learn to active listen and to pay attention to people. And after about a year and a half, I really got good at writing stories and taking something that was not interesting and making it compelling. So you're at this time, you're a reporter. Correct. You're not an anchor. You're not sitting behind the desk. You're out in the field. Correct. And the anchor's going, and we have Corey down here <laughs> at the uh, Four Seasons Landscaping. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what th that's... And that's an esoteric uh, reference that not a lot of people will get. But yes. <laughs> that's yes, okay. With Rudy G and the, yeah. Uh, yeah. and the hair coming down. All right. So you're out in the field. And how long did that part of your career last? Well, at, in Fort Myers, I did that for three years. And then I needed a live shot experience where you go live. And at that time, you get an agent. So the agent said, uh, you know, you're really good. What do the TV news directors want? They want live experience. And she started sending me on interviews. And she said, go to this station in Jacksonville. I said, I don't want to go to Jacksonville. But I walked into that station and boy, you get a feeling and you go with your gut. They had the longest running anchor team in the country. It was Channel 4 in Jacksonville. And all you did was go live about five times a day. If it bleeds, it leads. And that station, you know, it was we were just murders and this and shootings and SWAT team call out, domestic abuse cases, etc. I got very good at telling a story live and being and thinking on my feet. But unfortunately, Jacksonville is also a military town. And at that time, we were in war. And I had to tell a great deal of stories uh, about soldiers who lost their lives and knock on the doors of family members and have them share that story, which was something I, I never enjoyed doing at first because it's so horrible. And I had a news director that said to me, but Corey, you're looking at it personally. You have to understand that everybody grieves differently and some people want to talk. So if you don't ask, the answer is always going to be no. 
And she was 100% correct because you'd knock on those doors and say, I'm so sorry you lost your loved one. It's my job to talk about what made his life so special. So they weren't necessarily expecting you. Not at all. You're just walking correct. up with a cameraman maybe that's kind of in the background. Correct. And saying, hey, can, uh, can, can I ask you about uh, what happened to your loved one? And every reporter's had to do it. I always approached it from a place of authenticity. And I would come at it and not say, hey, I'm with so-and-so. I'd say, Carrie, I don't want to be here. And I'm sure you don't want me here. Your son died in the line of duty. And I want to tell a story about what made him special. Because he's a true hero. And I can go to the neighbors and they're going to tell me, oh, I used to see him walking the dog or getting the mail. But that to me doesn't encapsulate a life. If you would like to share with me what made him special and we can memorialize him, I would love to do it. If not, I totally and respectfully understand. So you would edit it. You would put it together. You would do... Uh, we would do a 40-minute interview, and we'd knock it down to about 90 seconds. Okay. Wow. That's All right. So so that's pretty intense. I, uh, I've i never had to be in that position where I went into a family like that and uh, asked them to share these things when it was still so fresh. Yeah. I've yeah. done it a lot. Yeah. Corey... How long in Jacksonville? And then, then we get, bring us down to WPBF after sure. that. Jacksonville, uh, I left, came down here in 2004 and stayed till 2008 working as a nightside reporter and weekend anchor. And that was a WPBF? Correct. All right. And so that got you to Palm Beach County? Yes. Had you ever lived in Palm Beach County before? Never. And the reason I call the podcast Business in Paradise is because I got to choose to live here. I'm, Sharon and I moved down here in 2006. And uh, we just thought it was paradise. We came from Chicago. We were at a meeting in November at the Breakers. We looked around. We said, this place is amazing. Someday I'd like to be able to live here. That was in 2002. It took us four years to actually figure out how we were going to do this and get down here. But now that I'm here, at least most of the year, I never want to leave. What do you think about living here in Palm Beach County? Because Obviously, you chose to stay. You know, Carrie, you're 100% correct. Every time I leave and then I land at the airport, that smack of humidity hits you and you're like, for me, most people don't like it. I go, ah, home. And I love it. I love it here. We do live in paradise. It's such an eclectic area and you're so close to everything, but yet far enough away. So I do love everything about it. I love that we're getting more culture. I love that... Uh, you know, we've got the water right here naturally, but I like that I can hop on the Bright Line and be in Miami and go to some great museums or go over to the Kravis Center and see some wonderful shows. Yeah, Corey, talk to me a little bit about your family. Tell me uh, about how you and your wife met, and we were talking earlier about your children and what's going on with them. <laughs> and then let's get to what you're really about today and uh, the business that you started uh, when you left WPBF. But tell me about the family. Sure. Um, people always ask me, wow, you spent 15 years in news. Did you ever interview this one or this one? Or what's the greatest thing you ever did in news? And I think the greatest thing I ever did in news was having the opportunity to meet my wife. Because if you've met my wife, she's way out of my league. As you would say, I outkicked my coverage. But I was at a uh, nightclub one night called Noche that was uh, right on uh, by the cigar bar and uh, Prosperity and uh, PGA. 
And uh, I was having a, a cocktail. I just got off the air. It was about 11.45. I got off the air at 11.30. I made it over there in record time. And thankfully, I used to pop in there a lot and just enjoy the Latin music that they used to play and the entertainment. And she had walked in with a girlfriend. And the manager at the time knew who I was because I was there all the time. And he saw her and he said to her, hey, do you want to come meet the TV guy? And he walked her over to me and um, said hello, etc. And at this point, I was 38 years old. Now, what was interesting about that is a lot of my friends were getting married and were married. So I decided at the age of 33, 34, every year I'm not married, I'm going to learn something new. Well, one of the things I decided to learn how to do was dance, salsa dance, Latin dance. She's from Colombia, my wife. So then playing that type of music. And when she saw the gringo get up and decide to dance with her, that kind of helped as well. Um, but we went on numerous dates after that. And we fell in love with each other because of our love for family. Her parents, my parents, family to me is everything and the same to her. And uh, we both have a, a closeness and a genuine interest in family and that culture that comes along with it. So, Corey, I've been to Colombia quite a few times, and I, maybe we've talked about this, but um, where is she from in Colombia? Bogota. Oh, really? Okay. So she grew up right in the city. Yes. Moved to uh, South Florida. She moved to South Florida. That is correct. With her family. And you have two little ones. We do. We have two little ones that are 10 and 7, Madison and Anna. And you're living in what town? We live in Jupiter. Oh, wow. Okay. Right here in Jupiter. So, uh, and Corey is showing me a picture of, what's her first name? That's Adriana and I at uh, Christmas. Adriana. And uh, she's absolutely gorgeous. Colombia is such a beautiful country and the people are, are so uh, lovely and warm and um I'm hopeful for the day that I can go back and that uh, Columbia is uh, in a position where their health situation is good enough for uh, folks to begin traveling back to Columbia because it's so wonderful uh, to be able to go there. Wonderful chefs, too, that have moved and relocated from New York City off to the Cartagena area that I would love to just go and explore. I, I'm a foodie, and I love that. I've been to some phenomenal restaurants in Cartagena. Would highly recommend it. You've got, you, you've got to make that trip soon. Corey, uh, we've talked about this career that you had over the years. And before you get to what, talking about CS Media Works, were there some people that you would say, these people were particularly influential in my life that uh, gave me some really good advice or some good guidance or just gave me a break um, hmm. that, that you would call significant mentors to you? That's a great question. I never really had that one traditional mentor that people will say, that's my mentor, I go to him or her. I am thankful for the opportunity that I had my news director in Jacksonville, uh, Mo Ruddy. She was fantastic and taught me that everybody grieves differently and to run and gun and the, the really the value of hard work and persistence. My news director here at WPBF and still a close friend, you may know, Joe Kasha, you know, brought me on as an anchor and he said, hey, uh, you know, have you anchored before? And I said, no. And he says, why should we take a chance on you? And I said, Joe, I'm not coming to win the bronze. And he really loved that. And it was that attitude that was instilled in me. But you know what? As a reporter, I had many wonderful opportunities to interview people of all walks of life. And I am a true relationship person. So 
when it comes to mentors, I would reach out to people and maybe someone like yourself that I only met once or twice. And I'd say, hey, Carrie, you know, I know we did the story on, but I was just wondering, can I pick your brain or can I learn something about you? And I like those little tidbits that I can take from other people's journeys and incorporate them in my own because it only makes me stronger. So I would say life is my mentor because I am a keen observer and pay attention to everything. And I'm really open uh, to continuously learning. Yeah, that's great. And and, uh, just the other night, I saw Joe Kosh out at uh, an event for the Quantum House, and he is enjoying his retirement (laughs) uh, very much. He's got long hair and a ponytail, and he's looking good. And he was telling me how, I won't reveal his age on the air, but he was telling me how old he is, and he looks about 15 years younger. So Joe's in great shape. Okay, let's get to this. CS Media Works, which I love the name because it's my initials also. Yes, that's Uh, why I did it. Yes, thank you. And uh, you started this business in the midst of this recession. So you intentionally set this up so that it could be something that you would grow and groom and build over the years. What's the business look like? Who are the typical clients? What are you doing? I see you posting things. You're all over the country now dealing with different types of clients, but uh, what's a typical engagement for you? Yeah, I appreciate it, Carrie. There's ups and downs over the years, but for me, I look at it and so often people don't know their why. And Simon Sinek made that powerful, the why, but if you are a news guy, you understand the why is the everything because your audience is gonna change the remote in the first six seconds if you don't grab their attention. Well, the same thing is true in life. What I help people do is craft their story, figure out their unique gift, and we all have one. The key is not to betray it. And then work that gift and stay true to their brand to create brand equity and understand that in this day and age, they're dealing with four generations of consumers that do things differently, i.e. you and I are around the same age, but some of your employees may not want to have a conversation. They'd prefer you do it through text or they don't want to pick up the phone. So what I do is I work with companies on crafting their story and protecting their brand. So it's a lot of crisis management, especially from the media point of view, what to say, how to say it, what to avoid, how not to fall for hypothetical situations and baiting situations. Because everybody says, well, that's not going to happen. Well, it's not if, it's when. So clients for me are nonprofits. I work in the hospitality space with country clubs. I also do presentation training and work with people on telling their story. So it's a lot of politicians that need help giving those stump speeches or raising dollars and really understand that people don't want to hear your resume when you're giving a speech. They want to know what's in it for us. So tell the story differently and spin it around. So it's leaders looking to grow and capture engagement. So if you're looking for media coaching, presentation training, crisis management sessions, Ideally, that's uh, the space I work in. All right. So, Corey, you don't necessarily have to name any names, but is there an example of a crisis situation Mm. that one of your clients found themselves in and how you kind of worked with them so that they could work through uh, that particular situation? And if you think it's too obvious because we'll all know who it is, that's fine. We can uh, move on to the next question. I sign NDAs for... All of my clients, I can tell you that there's been crises involving politics that were well known in the news, death due to unseen circumstances at um, facilities with animals, 
Um, so things along those lines, but, uh, yeah, typically it could be anything for anybody. A crisis is anything that hurts your bottom line and can hurt your brand. I'll spin the answer to this. If you're in a crisis, never say no comment because the reporter will get on the air and say, we tried to reach Kerry stamp, but he had no comment. And that pregnant pause right there assumes guilt. Say something without saying something. And that is, it's under investigation, we're looking into it, we'll keep you informed. And the other thing is, never wait, because you saw what happened with United Airlines when they uh, dragged that passenger off the plane a few years ago, as they said they reaccommodated him. Uh, They waited 18 hours, and by the time they did that, Twitter took off, social media took off, the stock price took a dip, and there were so many complaints. So time is not on your side in a crisis, it's important to have a team and to respond right away and say something. And that in some cases is even acknowledging the past without accepting blame. So uh, case in point, a a friend of mine uh, was sharing a story. He's a general manager at a country club in Virginia. Used to be a plantation. 1845, there was a lynching there. And the Washington Post reached out and said, Joe, we want to come to the club and show where the lynching was. Most people would freak out. He and I spoke. I said, Joe, this is a perfect example of you not accepting the blame, but saying, hey, this is something that's awful that's happened in our past, but here's how we've grown from it. And here's what we've learned as a society, because I wasn't around in 1845, but today in 2022, we're about diversity, we're about equity, we're about inclusion, and this is what our club does. This is part of our past, and it's a solid reminder of how far we've come and how far we continue to go. So sometimes it's using crisis as an opportunity. The most potent example of that, obviously, is Tylenol with their cyanide situation in the 80s and how they reintroduced the bottle from the you could just pop open to have the triple resistant tamper proof packaging as well as the couponing for the public. Wow, that was powerful. Corey, you mentioned a couple of different club examples where you've worked with uh, private clubs. Is that a common client for you? I fell into that space. Uh, a friend of mine uh, used to be a Boca West. His name was J.D. Pietro, and uh, his name is J.D. Pietro, I should say. And um, he retired, and he brought me into that space to help out with just some media coaching and things along those lines. And they never really had problems with the media until they did. Think about it, food poisoning, slip and fall, and then behind the gates, there could be anything that would happen in your life could happen there. So I've created some great relationships with club managers across the country, and it's been a nice space for me. And do those clubs bring you in to do training sessions? Are they bringing you in to handle a specific situation? Or is it, we've got a crisis, who do we call? We don't know anybody. Google... Crisis 101. Yeah, crisis for <laughs> crisis management for country clubs. Uh, no, so uh, a lot of the trainings I do, so right now I'm traveling a great deal. You're right. I just came back from uh, California. I was working with six clubs out there just on doing crisis management training sessions. But then, uh, and I'm headed to San Diego next week to speak at their national conference in two weeks uh, to speak at their national conference on crisis management and how to create a plan and the value of creating a plan. And it's a dynamic interactive session showing them like, Hey, this could happen. And here's how I'll spin it as a reporter, you know, instead of saying, uh, did you know it's yes or no? Would you do this? Or hypothetically, did you know? And then in situations it'll be, uh, locally when I came back in town just the other day, I was working with a client that had a crisis at a club and helping them 
proactively get in front of it. Okay. And if I was just a business in the community here in Palm Beach County, what types you shared some of the crises that uh, I might want somebody to help me spin in the media, but let's give me some examples. If I had somebody that was working in the job site and was killed. DUI, workplace violence, sexual harassment, cybersecurity, but it's not only that, I'm also a marketing strategist. So I can sit with you and look at what you're doing and saying, well, what story are you telling? And is it consistent in your email? Are you living up to your brand and your purpose? And what do you want me to know as a consumer, as opposed to just about you? So it's anything that would happen in the workplace. And if you think of the world we live in now with COVID, people not wanting to come back to work or a simple, you know, what used to be okay, a touch on the shoulder when we were growing up is not accepted now. It's diversity, equity, and inclusion. I facilitate a lot of events for people in their organizations and their meetings just to help them get to the root of what a cause is and what their cause is and where they want to go. So it's a little bit of everything for everybody. I like to just get to meet people and find out what their pain point is. And if I can help them, great. If not, I'll put them in touch with somebody as I like to be a resource. And Corey, when you're doing these engagements, are you doing these kind of on a project basis Are people putting you on retainer and when I need Corey, I'm going to call Corey or uh, are you keeping track of hours? How's it work? Uh, It's both. So I'm on retainer uh, with several clients, one actually right across the street over there. And and then others will call me and say, hey, I need I got a text this morning. Can you facilitate a meeting for our nonprofit Uh, at the end of March? uh, We're trying to achieve these goals. Can you do that? Um, Sure. If I'm available, I'll do it. Wow. Corey, so what you're doing, the marketing stuff, yes, I know people that kind of focus in that area, telling the story. I've listened to a lot of speakers talk about story branding and storytelling, and but I've never really seen anybody that actually puts it into practice from a marketing perspective. And the other thing is that uh, for the crisis management I don't know anybody else that does that. Is there any competition in this business? Uh, not that I'm aware of that I know of. But you have to look at it, say, you never know when the media is going to knock on your door for anything. It just takes one employee to say, you know, I'm not happy with the rules that Kerry Stamp has in place hypothetically with masks and I don't want to wear them to call the media and say, my boss is making me wear a mask and the governor says masks are anti-science and I don't believe in them. Next thing you know, you got a reporter at your door. Why? Because it's a he said, she said, and it sells. So how do you answer that? If I ask you, hey, do you agree with the governor that masks are anti-science? Yes or no? Well, what are you going to say? <laughs> I'm painting you in a corner. If you say yes, well, you've upset half the population. If you say no, you've upset the governor, which could be even worse. So, you know, it's knowing how to handle situations like that. Yeah, that's a fine line to walk, especially right now in the polarized uh, environment we've got today. You know, and it's saying something politically correct. Hey, the governor and I want the same thing, and that's the health and safety of every Floridian. Corey, I know you've learned a lot over the years as you started your own business. If you were talking to a younger version of yourself and said, hey, Corey, here's some things you're going to learn along the way, and you're going to learn these because you're going to make some big mistakes— and maybe you should think about doing this slightly differently. Are there things that you would go back and maybe, you know, as long as you got the value of the lesson out of it, maybe, would you go back and change anything about how you created your business? Hmm. That's a tough one. Sometimes you have, uh, you know, complete candor. I I think we all have self-doubt. 
And I would go back and say to that younger version of me is believe in yourself. You got a gift kid and believe in it. Don't doubt it. Work it. Continue to persevere and you're going to be all right. And to a younger entrepreneur, to uh, somebody that's, you know, 20 or so years younger than us and thinking, I want to go out on my own. Anything you would add to that? It's interesting because I try to mentor some younger people and I share with them the lessons that, you know, old lion, young lion, just because someone looks a little intimidating, don't be afraid to walk over and talk to them. If you don't ask, you don't know. And guess what? Maybe they want to talk to you, but they're a little intimidated. Why would you want to talk to an old guy like me? So it's perseverance. It's determination like you with selling that job to that boss for $1,500 a month where you pushed your way in on the third try. He said yes. And me being rejected everywhere throughout my career in the beginning to get my foot in the door. It's perseverance. It's determination. It's a belief in yourself. And there's no reason your story, my story doesn't equate to anybody else. I mean, you know, so often we hear about it in Hollywood with these guys sleeping in their cars you know, or they're homeless for an amount of time before they succeed. Well, it's make your break. Go out and make your break. And don't blow your break, but go out and make it, try it. And just because it's never been done doesn't mean it can't be. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes it just takes a little bit of extra nerve and the willingness to be vulnerable and uh, be rejected. And that's how you take the next step to success. As an example, one of my past podcast guest has become a good friend, Kyle O'Neill, who's 20 years younger than I am, probably more than 20 years younger. <laughs> Let's I mean, talk about that. Kyle is in the insurance brokerage business. And he cold called me one day and said, Hey, Kerry, I see you doing these uh, posts on LinkedIn and YouTube and whatever. And I would uh, love to get to know you and your team. Can I stop by and just have a cup of coffee? To me, that was totally non-threatening. He's another professional. And he's a uh, sharp, very polished, professional guy. And I was like, yeah, sure, come on in. So we've become friends. We've been able to uh, share some thoughts, some ideas. And yes, it's good for me because I've got a lot of younger employees. I mean, there's certainly a generational gap between me and some of my employees. And it keeps me on target to uh, kind of understand, to have somebody to bounce ideas off of on how the mind works of uh, somebody that's 20 years younger than we are. As you were talking about the generations earlier, I kind of made a note of that. It's interesting because I'll do a lot of coaching with different clients just uh, along with their staff and teaching them, believe it or not, Carrie, how to network, how to go out and talk to people, not to just lead with, here's my card. Well, if you lead with your card, people are going to read your card and not have a conversation. But, you know, they start off with, my name is this and I do this. It's like, okay, it's the what, but why don't you just say, hey, how you doing? Because networking at an event, it's uncomfortable for everybody. But if you come at it from authenticity, hey, how are you? Where are you from? It's cold out. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? You're going to have a conversation and you'll both feel at ease. Absolutely. And uh, a lot of times if you just start out with, I do this, somebody forms an impression of their mind that okay, I got to get away from this guy because he sells insurance. Exactly. So, because I already have an insurance. I and, have a guy. Yeah. And I don't want another one because they call me and they ask me to buy things. And that's scary. <laughs> that's got, so, exactly. It's good stuff. Corey, this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground in a fairly short period of time. I guess I would ask you, you've built a, a very nice business. 
You've got an incredible background in the media, in being able to coach people, in uh, truly tying it all together. The whole marketing messaging and image and presentation skills that uh, you're now able to offer to your clients is uh, an invaluable uh, collection of resources. What's next? What's, what's your next invention of yourself? And how do you take this whole thing to the next level if you want to do that? I love that question. And I'll be 100% truthful, vulnerable, and honest with you. Turning 50 during the pandemic, I'm 51. I said to my wife, Adriana, I have a feeling in my gut and I don't know what it is. And she said, what do you mean? I said, I don't know. I think this is that midlife crisis people talk about. She panicked. And I said, no, 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 no. I don't want another woman in my life or a convertible or any of that stuff. I said, I don't want that hyphen on my epitaph not to mean something. I said, I used to be very involved with a lot of nonprofits and a lot of charities. And I want to give back more. I want to dedicate myself to doing more, create that legacy that's not only important for me to make a difference, but for my kids to learn from and pass it on and pass it on. So what I've been focused on is learning more about what I want to get into and approaching it carefully and relying on my network of people, my really super close friends, and getting involved in dedicating my passion and purpose to those things. And... One of them has been learning a great deal more about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Learning about the struggle of African Americans and embracing and reading more about that plight that we're not so often taught. And understanding where others come from. And being an active listener and approaching people that I've never met before, but I know through a friend and like that insurance person did with you, Kyle, reaching out and saying, hey, I'd love to learn more about you. And then starting with, what is your greatest challenge? Because if you ask people that, they'll tell you. And innately, I just like learning that because it's steering me in a direction of where I want to help, where I want to get involved. So that's what's next for me. I'm enjoying what I'm doing. It's weird to say that you're 50 or 51 because you still feel like, you know, you're that college kid with the ponytail and buying your first blue suit going in for the job interview. But uh, I love it. I love it. Um, I have two little girls that keep me on my toes. They keep me young. And I feel like the old guy with some of the things that they talk about and some of the acronyms they use. But, you know, that's what Google's for. Wow. Corey, that's awesome. This has been an amazing conversation. And I hope that you can coach me. I hope that you can give me some presentation skills and that you can help me uh, craft my story. But I don't want to have to call you for the crisis <laughs> management part of this. So thank you so much. This has been the Business and Podcast Paradise. This is Kerry Stamp, your host. My guest today is Corey Sabin with CS Media Works, and it's been a fascinating conversation. Corey, thanks so much for joining us. Kerry, thank you. And I've got to tell you, as a guy who did uh, five plus years in radio, you have a gift and you do a great job and you're a great interviewer. And uh, I'm used to being on the other side of the microphone. So thank you for making me feel so comfortable. My pleasure, Corey. Thanks for being my guest. for listening to the Business in Paradise Palm Beach podcast with Carrie Stamp, founder of Carrie Stamp and Company, Principal Wealth Advisors. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. 
The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of the Commonwealth Financial Network. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Carry Stamping Company is located at 110 Bridge Road, Dequesta, Florida, 33469. Securities and advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network member FINRA SIPC, a registered investment advisor.